podcast has bad words. <laughs> All right, y'all, before we dive into our surprise questions today, let's talk a little bit about Stillness is the Key, the new book by Ryan Holiday. So I really enjoyed this book. Thank you. I think uh, I think you've created something meaningful with with your previous works, and and this adds on to it. I think our philosophies are aligned on this one. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It, although, it, it, as you talk about in the book, uh, we are walking contradictions, no matter what. I I always like to think of it as like everything I do as one of the minimalists is is blanketed by irony. It's like, yes. oh, you're wearing underwear. I can't believe you're such a fraud, right? Well. Try writing a book about overcoming obstacles and then a book about not having an ego <laughs> and then and then writing a book about stillness. You're just like, you're fucked. <laughs> like, yeah. you'll never live up to what you said in the books. Well, and the ego thing is fascinating too because then you have to go promote the book about ego and it's like... <laughs> or my publisher was like, oh, we had this cool cover idea and it's like your name's not on it. And it's like... It was a, I'm like, I think this is a trap because like, I get what you're saying, but like, how could that possibly be good for the book? No one's going to know who it's by and they're going to think it's weird. You know what I mean? Yeah. But at the same time, you look at how uh, famous musicians are doing albums and they're not even putting, uh, they're putting nothing on the covers. There's no titles quite often. Now you look at Drake's new album, uh, albums and, and, you know, it's just like him standing on whatever the CN tower in, in, uh. Sure, but when you have when you have like forty million Instagram followers, like it doesn't matter. None of this matters. You're the distribution, right? But so, I, I don't know how many Instagram followers you have, but someone is saying the same exact thing about the number of Instagram followers you have. Like, as soon as I have a quarter million, That's then I'll true. be happy, right? Yes. And I will be able to sustain myself. But of right. course, that the uh, Drake looks at someone with a hundred million followers, right? And, like, Look how many Katy Perry has, or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so it's uh, that is all part of ego in a sure. way, right? Well, that's also uh, why we don't have any stillness. So all these things are related, right? Like Theodore Roosevelt said, uh, uh, "Comparison is the thief of joy." The idea that there that like this one more thing, then we'll feel good. Mm -hmm. You know, then we'll have enough. Is like I've been saying, like, okay, I get why that desire, the desire to accumulate, like even you, the desire to accumulate in nest is what has created the world that we live in, Absolutely. right? Like humanity would not have survived if we didn't want to know what's, on, if we didn't need to know what's on the other side of the hill, and if we didn't need to have more than other people, mm -hmm. and if we didn't have this ceaseless desire to win. That doesn't mean that it's it's good for the species, but that doesn't mean it's good for the individual human being. You right. know what I mean? Like what, what, what evolution and biology is saying is like, is if I can trick this guy into going over this hill, Yes, he'll die earlier, but he might have more offspring or whatever, right? Uh -huh. Like so so it's like uh comparison, people go, but doesn't that fuel your work and or or you know, doesn't competitiveness fuel your work? And it's like sort of, but also makes you incapable of enjoying the fruits of that work. Oh. So like ha maybe there's a maybe there's a cleaner fuel you can run on is right. the way I think about it. You used the term enough a moment ago, and, and I think quite often we don't ask ourselves, like, what is enough, right? It, it, whether it's the, the well, as soon as I have a million followers, then that'll be enough, or, or yeah. as soon as I have a million dollars. And, and by the way, these are all arbitrary. We had uh, Andrew Schultz on the podcast recently, and he's like, I don't understand people who want to be billionaires. Like, 
just convert your currency to yen or whatever. Now, <laughs> now you're now you're a millionaire, or a billionaire, right? Like that it's arbitrary. Or yeah. as soon as you become a millionaire, if you convert that to uh, British pounds, now you're not a millionaire. Now right. what? Now you give yourself permission to feel bad because sure. I'm not a millionaire anymore. It's yeah. it's all arbitrary. And uh, one example is recently we uh, we capped our Patreon audience at six thousand people. Ooh, we said, okay, you're not supposed to do that. I know. This yeah. is, we said, well, what's enough? Was that even possible? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm just wondering if yeah. you even had to like ask them to make that feature because that's like so antithetical to like how all platforms. Like, if I was like, I only want a hundred thousand Instagram followers, Instagram. That's not a thing. That's uh, not a feature. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's it's weird to think about, but we we had to sit down and say, what is what is actually enough? How do we pay podcast Sean and Jordan and Jess who runs our social media and Ryan and I can make some money off of this whole Patreon thing too? but without doing any ads on our podcast. It allows us to be 100% advertisement free, but at the same time, identifying what is enough because yeah. I could. I also wanted to keep the the, the so the, the Patreon stuff that we do sort of private. Patreon yeah. allows us to 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 talk about some things that we typically wouldn't discuss in front of hundreds of thousands of people that we can discuss in front of a small sort of audience. What is interesting though, because on the one hand, enough is good, but like so, my company Brass Check over the years has worked with lots of different authors on the marketing capacity, and every time I talk to an author who has a number, I don't want to work with them. So like mm -hmm. when someone says. Uh, like someone will, hey, I, you know, I've, I've seen you, you know, you work with this company or this brand and like, I want you to market my book. And they're like, because my goal is to sell 2 million copies. Uh -huh. And I'll go, nope, mm. because inevitably I go, where's this 2 million number come from? Mm -hmm. And it's like, they pulled it out of their ass. Right. Or they heard so-and-so sold 1.5 and they just added some to it. So so what the reason I'm not interested is that they're, they're saying their motivation, because like theoretically, as an author, you don't have a goal for how many people your book, you don't have a, you're like, as many people as want to read it, I would like to read it. Right. You know, well, that's which, a, in a weird way, a purer a, way to do it. So when, when someone's like 2 million, what they're saying is like, their goal is like ego and uh, domination and profit, mm -hmm. not like, writing something meaningful that could help people. Right. You know what I mean? Well, it, 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 that's width versus depth in a yes. way, right? Like you would rather have a hundred people who have their life changed by this book as opposed to 10,000 people who read it. Or what I say, like, cause I'll talk to authors about this too. I go, okay, here's a scenario. Uh, and well, let's run through it on my book. Okay, so my book comes out and stillness becomes this word people start using. Mm -hmm. uh, I see, you know, like athletes or, or, you know, influential people in the world, like taking pictures of the book. Um, I hear that like this sports team used it, or I hear that this world leader used it, or, or I start getting testimonials from people who are like, you know, this saved my marriage. I get all this stuff, right? Like it, it starts, it has real impact in the world but it sells zero copies. Mm. Conversely, I can choose, uh, it sells 250,000 copies or a million copies, uh, but literally no one's heard of it. Mm -hmm. Like it, because it, there are books that like Absolutely. are successes, but we don't, it's like, it just had zero impact. We don't right. know, like, did they buy their own copies? Like, was this as weird? What would I choose? I would gladly choose the impact one. And I'm not, I'm not even just saying that from like, oh, what seems more meaningful? The impact is why you write a book. You don't write a book to get rich. There's many other ways, better ways to make money. Absolutely. But if, if, if I can have impact, if I can have impact at that level, 
I will find many different ways to monetize it. I'll give talks. People will set up a Patreon campaign. Like, do you know what I mean? If you have impact, you can monetize it. Yeah. If you don't have impact, it's all pointless. So I, I think what you're saying there with with the number thing being arbitrary, like if someone comes to you and says, I need you to help me market this book because I want to sell 2 million copies. But if they have a good enough reason why that's enough for them, uh, for example, like that too, if I sell 2 million copies, I'll be able to do blank that's going to change the world sort of thing maybe but, yeah sure right maybe. Be, be, and, and it's i think it's backing into that number yes that's that two million sounds so arbitrary right that's what the problem is yes. whereas with the six thousand like we really figured out it was about 5900 was yes. and so six thousand just seemed better than yeah. to say okay we're going to be 5932 people yeah. like okay six thousand is uh, what was appropriately enough for us uh, now here's the other thing i'm also willing to change that at some point in time because sometimes what is enough today may be too much tomorrow and it may not be enough tomorrow as well well and i think th this is it, your six thousand is what you need to make the business sustainable meanwhile the vast majority of the stuff that you do is for free yes. and has unlimited potential reach right right and so i think about that too it's like uh, i write for daily stoic i write a daily email for free every day mm -hmm. it's uh you know i wrote one hundred and ten thousand words for it last year that's mm. a so every year i write a book that i give away for free yeah. right or two uh, books basically yes yeah. yeah for this book's like sixty thousand words so that's yeah. two books so and i've done this since uh, since 2016 and I have no plans to stop. So every year I give away a book for free. So I don't feel bad monetizing the stuff that I do monetize. And I don't feel like I'm not thinking like, okay, what's the minimum price to reach the maximum people? You know, I'm like, here's, here's what enough is. Like, mm -hmm. here's a reasonable, that like, uh, I think the best businesses, like the businesses of sort of our generation are the ones that are like, we create uh, this much value and we capture like this percent of it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. that, and because like, that's really all we need. And for some of these companies, it's literally billions of dollars because they create so much value. But like, right. like Craigslist, Craigslist makes about a billion dollars in revenue each year and uh, like 900 million of it is profit. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's an obscenely profitable business, uh -huh. but, and so you might go like, nobody needs that. But Craigslist could easily be a $10 billion business. Right. But they're like by charging for everything. But they're like, look, we don't need it. We're a privately held company. We cre uh, we create value for all these different communities. Really, like, let's just capture a small percentage of the value that we're putting out there in the world. You talked for a second about the Daily Stoic, uh, DailyStoic.com. If people yes. want to get on the email list there, yes. um, let's talk about email for a second because, okay. in, in a way, I think you didn't uh, write about it. Uh, explicitly here but i think the implicit uh, thing when you wrote about uh, uh napoleon yes. uh, bonaparte he he had the the best email hack which uh was effectively uh, i use boomerang in my my gmail inbox uh to boomerang messages that i want to respond to immediately but can you talk about a little bit about what napoleon did with letters that he received yeah i probably found that napoleon story when i was like 20 years old and uh. it's been sort of changed my life basically what napoleon would do is he would wait to reply to things he he would he his secretary was basically instructed to say like don't open the mail for three weeks so let's have a three-week delay on mail and what napoleon would do he'd open the mail he'd be like that's handled doesn't matter anymore 
never mattered you right. know and then and whereas then, if he would open the the same day he got them he would have been compelled to take action on something that he otherwise would be, he may have not needed to take any action on at all yes exactly and so like for instance my email strategy is i i, I basically do inbox zero um i mean it's because I usually get in control of my schedule. It's like I probably have 30 emails in there right now. But like what I do is uh, like any email just from like a random stranger asking me for something, I um, I just like mark as red and then I star it. And then like my thing is I, I never, I've never in my life bought Wi-Fi on an airplane. And then I just like, like I'll read and I'll hang out. And then like, you know, let's say I have some, I fly to Europe in a couple of months. I'll just open up my computer and I'll just start going through these things. And like people, like a lot of the problems have solved themselves. You know, someone's like, I don't know if I should choose this one or this one. Like they chose, you know, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. And then a lot of them are people just like, oh, thank you. Or like, oh, have you ever checked out this book? Like I didn't need to read that seven minutes after it came in. Mm -hmm. I The book is either still good or it was never good. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. And I just get caught up and, and like never. So I'll reply to some of these, sometimes these emails like four months late, you know, uh -huh. I'll be like, so sorry. I just have like a, a formatter, like a, you know, a shortcut thing. And it goes like, so sorry to be late responding. And then I pick up like after that sentence ends. And then I go like, um, uh, yeah, you should do this. Or like, hey, you know, what about this? Or like, Maybe I already wrote, a, like, I literally wrote a book about this exact topic. Like, please check that out. Right. And no one has ever been like, like, I hate you. Why did you take so long to reply? They're like, I can't believe you replied at all. Thank you. You know? And if they did, you wouldn't want to, that wouldn't be a, a yeah. person you want to communicate with anyway. Yeah. Well, so something on that. But so, so they're like, thank you. I couldn't believe you would reply. And the point is they sent the email with no pressure, uh -huh. the pressure we create, like we're like, I gotta get back to them in 24 hours. Uh -huh. They were never expecting that. Yeah. You know, like they were grateful for three months, which means I probably could have waited a year, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, like that's actually one of the things, like the only, the only time I'll like not reply to an email or I like sort of hold it against the person is like, they sent me this long ass email and then like a day later they were like, hey, just following up. I'm like, not only are you going to the back of the line, I'm just gonna like, kick you out of line. Yeah. There's all these much nicer, more polite people who didn't expect or demand anything. Yeah, and, yeah. And generally, you know, just because someone else has a shitty expectation doesn't yes. mean that you have to adjust yours to also be shitty expectations. Well, like you can I, tweet that, Sean. <laughs> I, I'm sure you you have like a you guys sell things, so you have customer service for minimalists. Yeah. Like with customer service for Daily Stoic, like people don't seem to realize like you send an email to an address. The customer service team starts at the oldest email. So when you reply to your own email, you put yourself at the back of the line again. Uh -huh. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and that was like watching that happen was actually so helpful for me. Just like philosophically, it was like, oh, like by forcing things, by like demanding, I'm actually I'm probably all sorts of places in my life. I'm forcing things and I'm actually making it take longer. Yeah. You're like they think by replying, they go, I sent this email two days ago. And it's like, actually you sent it at Friday at 11.59 p.m. And now it's like, uh, now it's like Sunday at 8 a.m. That's not two days, you know? And, and but you, you've actually moved, your, you've accidentally moved yourself to the back of the line and, uh, or, you know, back a day and a half in line or whatever. And, uh, and so I go like, I'm just gonna relax. Like I sent the thing, it'll happen mm -hmm. or it won't happen. Yeah, and uh, it's ego again, I, I, at least, I find at least for me where, I, I feel very compelled. Yeah, I'm an inbox zero guy myself that where 
to get things done or you used the phrase earlier i get on planet i get caught up yeah. like caught up with what like right. like it's things like, i never signed up for right yeah, caught, yeah. i'm gonna reach the end of the internet like yes. you can't get caught up on youtube like yeah it's, that's true it, it, but i feel compelled to for whatever reason i feel compelled to uh get caught up on twitter get caught in, yes. in the, i think it's quite often that's just my ego yeah that sort of fear of missing out even yeah. though you don't actually want what you're missing out on oh. you know well it's like the the strength like it, these are virtues uh for people that have because of technology have turned into vices. So like, like productivity, uh, you know, uh, initiative, wanting to stay on top of things, ha you know, accountability, uh, not wanting to drop balls. These are all the things that make you good at, at being a writer, at running a business, at, you know, being an executive like you were. But then basically you're like, oh wait, Facebook is like designed to prey on these impulses. Mm -hmm. And so is your email inbox. Yeah. Like, um, I so my system used to be, for instance, just like I, I have it cr reverse chronological in my email or whatever. Like it shows like the most recent, and then and so I start at the bottom and I cross stuff up. And now Gmail has this like artificial intelligence. It's like, hey, you didn't respond to this seven days later. Are you sure you don't want to? And it's like, I want to not know that it exists. Like yeah. you're messing with my <laughs> you're messing with my system totally, and you're like putting it on my to do like. I, my wife, you know, gets mad at me about this sometimes. Like I'm kind of a person who has like a to-do list. Mm -hmm. And then, so since it's on the to-do list, it has to get done, even if it doesn't, you know? Yeah. And she'll be like, this is not a to-do list item. This is like a conversation about where we want to live, you know, or something, you know? And I'm yeah. like, I'm like, but I put it on the to-do list today uh -huh. and it's getting towards the evening. We have to check this box off. Totally. And so technology, if you have that, technology is very addictive because it's like there uh -huh. well, it's like look how many unread messages must make that go to zero that's an accomplishment but i find i find that i i will sometimes put things on my to-do list just so i can remove them and feel productive and i, I that's something else that i i, I struggle with on your to-do list like basically right after you did them yeah yeah well you like you did it and then you're like well i better get credit for this and you're like what scorecard is this no one sees this no it's one. just your own insanity yeah and, and so you you mentioned technology a second ago and uh, one of the things we're writing another book right now uh it's our fourth book it's called love people use things which is uh, it's a catchphrase yeah. we, we started using to end every show with and um we I mean, as you know, it's hard to write a book because of all the, the, the distractions. And some of them are meaningful distractions, most of which aren't, but they, they ape the form of something meaningful. Sure. You think it's meaningful in the moment. Um, the biggest thing I struggle with quite often is, uh, is technology and, and, and being bombarded. I don't have social media on my phone, yep. but still I, I find ways to either pacify myself or twitch for the notifications. Uh, just this week, I ordered a, an old BlackBerry. I'm going to go back to an old... Wow. It's not a dumb phone, but it's yeah. not a smartphone. It's like a a sane phone, maybe. Yeah. Like, like, okay, I like it, that. It, it, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't do all That's of... a competent phone. Right. It's not smart. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it, but here's the thing. like, Smart isn't always the, the, the best path, right? Like... like uh, you think of the person who is like, well, actually, you yeah. know, they, they can, like, I feel like that's what my phone's always doing. Well, actually, there's yeah. this other thing you could be doing. Nobody right cares. Now. Right. Yeah. And so how do you find when, when, especially when you're writing something like this, which requires a lot of research. When I look at, at your books, it's not 
always your own perspective. It's your perspective via the lens of everyone else's perspective. Whether you're writing about Napoleon or Abraham Lincoln or or Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, you're, you're writing about other people's perspectives. How do you stop from being so bombarded with these inputs? Yeah, I mean, I would say my books are like primarily research-driven and other people's perspective. And so you can't just sit at the computer and go, here's what I think today. I have to go like find stuff, right? And uh, so it takes time, it takes a practice. I mean, I have an advantage because I get to see reading as my job, mm-hmm. right? And not everyone is so lucky. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. But what, what I try to do is, is I, I don't think, it, it's not like rocket science. It's like I try to get up early, I try to not use my phone in the morning and I try to work uh, before stuff has happened, Mm -hmm. you know? So I don't get up super early, but like, you know, if I can write from like eight to 11, that's like the whole day, the day is one by 11. And now everything else is extra. Uh Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And and sort of carving out that space or, or, you know, I'll hear people go like, I'm taking the month of December off to write this book. Like, I don't do that. I write every day. Like it's, it, I think you make more progress just putting in the hours. I think uh, to go like, oh, I'm doing this in these two weeks in, you know, in October, I think that's gonna be really hard because you've put a lot of pressure. You're gonna have to work longer hours. There's not much room there for serendipity. You know, you're gonna be, your things are gonna intervene. You know, I, I so so for me, it's about a practice and then it's about going like, okay, I could watch CNN and find out things that are happening in the world and this would be of really no value to me whatsoever or i could sit here and read a book right you know what i mean we well, uh, talk about that in the book too uh leisure versus escapism yes and and i like I, i've never made that distinction before because i've always looked at leisure almost as escapism yeah but you make that distinction can you talk a little bit about that well so the the, the actual word leisure in greek is closely related to the word for school and so like leisure was like, okay, life is hard. We're like basically fighting for subsistence. Mm-hmm. And then leisure is like, oh, I'm going to go hear a philosopher speak today, you know, because they didn't have Netflix, uh-huh. right? Like, they, or, or, or they didn't have a smartphone. So leisure was like where you got to learn and study and be exposed to new things. So I think if we can see leisure as uh, like leisure is maybe it's laying by the pool, but it's probably closer towards... Uh, I forget the name of the guy who asked the question. It's probably closer to like skill acquisition mm-hmm. or like having a hobby that you really find refreshing mm. um, and and carving out time for that. Yeah, without necessarily having the end goal in mind, but for sure. the sake of learning itself. Yeah, Joseph uh, Piper, he's like a German philosopher. He was basically, say, he was saying like, look, pr- and I don't think, I think you can get the analogy here, religious or not, he's like, praying before bed might help you go to sleep, but that would be a ridiculous reason to pray. Mm. You know what I mean? In fact, it would undermine the sacredness of that that activity. My wife took me to a sound bath this weekend. Have you ever been to no. one of those? It's sort of like uh, you go to the yoga studio or whatever, and and uh, they have these bowls that make all these sounds, and it's meditative and it's beautiful. But I, uh, you lay down on the, the yoga mat, and instantly I'm, I fall asleep almost immediately. Yoga, yeah. yeah, and so I, I, I laid down as soon as they started the sounds, and an hour later I woke up and like, 
you don't go there to take a nap, yeah. but effectively that's the, that's what I was doing. I was <laughs> I paid twenty dollars to take a nap. In in Helsinki, there's this church. I think it's called the Church of Silence. Okay. And uh, or I don't know what how you say it in Finnish or whatever, but uh, but you walk in and it it's a church in like every sense, but it's completely non-denominational. It's this beautiful new sort of like artistic looking building, but just like there's no sounds. Like the doors are perfectly made so they're quiet there's no music there's no talking the floors are carpeted and there's panels and and it's just silence yeah. and the idea is that this silence is like very very sacred and you talk about in your book uh we're afraid of that of, of course of, of that silence yeah because with the when silence you have to sit with your own thoughts yeah. which is like Pascal said uh, all of man's problems stem from his inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Uh-huh. He said that like 600 years ago. Uh-huh. That's insane. Before all of the distractions of, well, I don't know, electricity. Yes. And then everything else that was subsequent to electricity, all of the 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 modern um, indulgences and distractions that we have now. Yeah, yeah. But uh, going back to... Oh, the- actually, so one... And I do talk about this book, the John Cage song, uh, 433. He yeah, has a song I, of silence. Yeah, silence uh, is not necessarily the absence of all sound. Yes, but but so if you look at the instructions on that song... So he, he wrote a song that's four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. Right. And so you can listen to the recording and, and the idea is like it's time for silence, but you can kind of hear things, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and even if you can't hear things on the recording, you hear things in your in your room that you're listening to absolutely but his his, the instructions the song's been performed live a number of times which is like fascinating that Mm -hmm. you're performing the song of silence but it basically goes like in an ample the the instructions say like to the conductor like in in a in an amplified setting perform a disciplined action Mm. and it just means that like it's actually harder to do nothing and to say nothing and to not contribute to the noise than it is to uh, do any of those things i always thought b- before reading your book i always thought he was just kind of a troll for doing that yeah. you know like uh there's uh this is time for our david foster wallace segment of the podcast sean um uh in the pale king david foster wallace writes about um there's a play that takes place where it's a guy is an irs desk and he's just like going through the the papers i don't know if you ever read the no. pale king but like he's he's so he comes out on the stage and he's just like reading the the uh, his notes in front of an audience and five minutes goes by 10 minutes goes by and and people start leaving after like 20 minutes and eventually more and more people keep leaving until the auditorium is empty and only at that point does the real play begin when the actual thing is empty and i kind of feel that way about about john cage there was definitely a trollish aspect to it i mean this is you know not that far um from Ducamp and and the sort of like you know the the invention of modern art you know where they're like you know what's the the urinal upside down kind of thing like there's an element of that i mean his joke was like could i like this is where you would hear music then. He's like, could I sell it to Muzak so this blank song would be played in an elevator, right? Which is funny <laughs> and trollish. Also, there's some social commentary there. But when you really study John Cage, you realize he had this uh, sort of deep fascination with, with Eastern religions. He was like a practicing Buddhist. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, okay, this isn't just trolling. This is There is a philosophical basis for this idea of of performance. And I thought the fascinating thing is he goes into this chamber, I don't know how to pronounce it, but he goes into what at the time was like the most 
sensory deprivation or sound deprivation chamber that technology had. And, and he says to the engineer, like, I can hear two sounds. And the engineer's like, it's totally quiet. Like, what are you talking about? And, and he's like, well, no, it's like sort of like this high sound and this low sound. And it was uh, like his brain and his circulatory system. He was hearing his own body. Right. And, and you're just like, oh, okay, I think you're making a statement here with this silence, which is like, what are we not hearing because of all the noise? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, that's a beautiful way to put it. Um, Tiger Woods, you talked about in in the book, the dreaded E word, Enough. right? Yeah. Yes. And, and, and for him, uh, he wasn't allowed to, essentially allowed to say enough to his father, right? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, t- Tiger Woods uh, had a horrible childhood. I think we think like, oh, it's a great golfer. His dad groomed him to be the best from, you know, like I, there, I know parents who've taken lessons from like what they heard Tiger Woods' dad did to him. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so like, oh, you know, at two years old, he was golfing. Like, that's what you got to do. You got to specialize. But it's like, actually, this was like a horrific form of child abuse. Mm-hmm. And it was it Tiger Woods' uh, scandal and, and, and tragic sort of ending, although there's been some redemption. This was not... A moral failing on Tiger Woods' part, so much of it as an inevitable outgrowth of the horrible childhood that he was subjected to. It was a continuation of not being able to say enough. Of course, of course, and and the idea that like uh, having discipline in one part of your life is all that matters. Like that there there was no integration of the discipline. Like who he was on the golf course was antithetical to who his father had been in real life and who Tiger Woods was in real life. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people do that. They're like, oh, I'm a lawyer and I help, uh, you know, underprivileged people. But, you know, I also cheat on my wife all the time. You know, yeah. like the idea yeah. that there's no integration of the ideas that they claim to believe or say they believe and then like how they live. Or then there's not even like the struck. I'm not saying I'm perfect, so I hope it doesn't come off as hypocritical. I'm saying there's not even the struggle to integrate the two, right? right? That we just keep, and that's what it was for Tiger Woods. It's like Tiger Woods was had this intense mental discipline and then this complete spiritual bankruptcy, yeah. and you need both, right? So it's like, imagine someone who, uh, you know, they read your stuff and they're like, look, I got rid of all my possessions. I'm down to like a backpack and a MacBook and uh, I live in Airbnbs, you know? Uh-huh. You might be like, good for you, but like, do they walk around just endlessly comparing themselves to each other, or are they have they just put all that energy into accumulating Twitter followers, right, or, or, or money, or or getting rid of stuff? Like Spartanism is a is a mental condition. You know, it's it, it's a form of OCD that's on the same spectrum as hoard, hoarding. Oh, right, so, sure. So if you look at people who can't stop getting rid of things, that isn't the goal either. the The opportunity for us is to like get rid of that which is superfluous, so we. Yeah. Yeah. So we can fill our life with something more meaningful than the stuff. Where, and the goal is to get to sort of moderation and balance. Yes. Right? Yeah. And yeah. I think it, people often, they, they see minimalism as like, oh, this is radical lifestyle. And what Ryan and I have been able to do really well is say, well, actually, it's a more practical lifestyle. Yeah. It's, it's not about living out of a backpack unless you want to for a period of time. I own some stuff. I have a couch and a coffee table. My daughter has a bed. I don't make her sleep on the floor, right? right. Like, like we, we own things, but we own things that add value to our life. And we constantly question what is and is not adding value. Well, no, and I'll give you a great example of, of what we're talking about, where it can go awry. And I won't name the person because I'm sure he's nice, but there was this New York Times piece maybe a year ago about like the fire movement, you yeah. know, the financial independence, retire early thing, yes. which I'm, I'm not only a supporter of, but I like I try to practice in my own life as I think about like how unpredictable the 
career of being a writer is like, how do you live beneath your means, build systems, you know, not try to work till you're 90 if you don't have to, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but so this guy manages to retire at like 30. He was like a programmer. He puts in the work. He does the savings, minimizes his needs. Boom. He's got, I don't know, a million dollars in the bank, doesn't have to work. So they're like, the reporter's like, what'd you do today? And he's like, well, I stared at the ceiling fan. This is like a quote. I'm not making this up. He's like, I stared at the ceiling fan for like an hour. And then uh, I'm making my way through the top 500 movies of all time. And I was like, dude, go get a job. Wow. Like, like at least a job, you would be like paying taxes and you'd be like, <laughs> uh, you'd have colleagues and you, you might be like, even if you're not making the world a better place, you at least have like purpose. Right? right. And by the way, if you have a job, you can still work through the top 500 movies of all time. This might take you a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, that is not what minimalism or financial independence or autonomy. It, it, it's not like, hey, how can I get rid of all this stuff so then I can literally just like, watched my life ticking away on my phone. That's yeah. insane. Yeah. Can we talk a bit about confidence versus ego? Because they, they get conflated quite a bit. Yeah. So in uh, I wrote this book, Ego is the Enemy. So obviously I've thought a lot about ego. And, and in that book, I'm mostly just saying, here's why ego is bad. And here are the costs of ego. And I'm even saying like, look, here's what humility looks like. And here's how here's some admirable examples of humility. But if I have to look back in that book and go like, where did I, now that I'm, I think I'm a better writer, now that I have distance from the project, what would I add? What would I improve? Um, I've, and I, I found this doing interviews and talking to people about it and speaking to groups, is that like, I, I was talking about the two ends of the spectrum, humility, confidence, but what's in the middle, or sorry, humility, ego, what's in the middle is confidence, mm -hmm. right? Like confidence is the golden mean between those two things. Mm -hmm. And, and so I don't have a good definition of confidence in ego is the enemy. Ah. But the book is about the problem of ego. So I, I get why it's not in there. But what I wanted to correct in this book is go like, okay, what, what is confidence and why is confidence important? And I think what you see, like if you went into a martial arts gym right now, the, the black belt or you know, the, the best person in the room is the most calm, the uh, nicest, mm -hmm. the least frantic, the most in possession of themselves. And if someone walked up and punched them in the face, they would probably handle it with a surprising amount of equanimity mm -hmm. as well. This is what confidence is. So to me, confidence and stillness are almost synonyms, right? Mm -hmm. The confident person isn't like, I, I'm gonna jump off this cliff. Like, look what I can do. I'm the best person in this room. The confident person, is still because they don't have anything to prove, you know, they don't, they're not like, their insides aren't churning with anxiety and doubt, you know, like there's ego and there's imposter syndrome and they're basically two sides of the same coin. Okay. Confidence to me is like the absence of whatever Trump wakes up feeling every day and then whatever like friends we have that like just can't seem to believe in themselves, you know, or that, that are constantly like imposter syndrome is in a weird way similar to ego in that the imposter is convinced that other people are gonna expose them as a fraud. And it's like, nobody cares. Yeah, Nobody's thinking about you at all. They're thinking about themselves. Right. And so th I think that's sort of where I come down on it. I think that uh, ego often manifests outwardly as like faux confidence, right? You, you We often see the person who, and you know you could see it especially in like the, the the sort of meme of the most macho guys or whatever. And some of them may actually possess confidence, and it's just 
outwardly showing but but i agree with you quite often the person who is most at peace tends to have the real confidence yeah when you see a guy pull up in a lamborghini you're not like that's a confident guy no you know you're like and and he probably the irony the sad irony and i think this is what drives so much of the world and also the world's misery is that that guy doesn't feel confident so he bought the lamborghini because he thinks that will make him feel more confident and look more confident and the irony is that it's only pushing the thing that he wants further away. Yeah, Brian Catlin has a joke about this. Uh, if I see a white guy in a Bentley, I assume he's a chauffeur or a dickhead. Yes. Uh, I mean, it, it's that's sort of, yeah, that, that's the thing. And by the way, there's nothing inherently wrong with a Bentley. If you have unlimited resources, I, I think that maybe it's a really well-designed vehicle. And I, I've seen... Yes. Uh, what? Who's the Apple designer? Johnny Ive. Yes. He has a Bentley, and he like he struggled with this sort of thing where it's like I really appreciate the design of it, sure. and he did it just for himself. And and he's also like a billionaire, right? And so it's like buying a biscuit for yeah, him. Yeah. Yeah. No, like so I spoke at this uh, NFL team a couple of weeks ago, and as I was walking into the thing, someone was like, "Oh, that's the owner. She's leaving." And I turned, and it was like you know, there's a parking lot filled with. Uh, Ferraris and, you know, very fancy cars of all the players, Mm -hmm. right? And then the owner of the team pulled out in like a tan Audi SUV, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, that car is not cheap. You know, that car is probably 75 grand, but she owns a billion dollar sports franchise, right? And meanwhile, this player who also making lots of money, uh, you know, is not driving a proportional vehicle, Right. Well, you know. and, and and that's actually quite true with most, you could call it confident people. We had uh, Chris Hogan on the podcast and uh, he wrote a book called Everyday Millionaires. They did the largest study of millionaires in America, right? 10,000 millionaires. And, you know, it's like the average millionaire drives a Toyota Camry, buys their suit at JCPenney's and like all of these things where like the confidence doesn't come because I have on the Armani suit and I yeah. have the the Lexus or whatever. I, I used to have, have two Lexuses back in my corporate days. Wow. And uh, because the you know, one was not enough, I had two Lexuses and, and a Land Rover. And, um, and and I found that like, well, it was, I was trying to fill a void, but also part of that was the ego. Like it was, it was look at me, look yep. what I, and, and now, I mean, I own the equivalent of a of a Lexus. It's called a Toyota, which yeah, it does all the same, same car. Pro- yeah, yeah. Yes. The, the, yeah. In fact, it, the seats are the same size. Like all the th- except it doesn't have the the emblem that says, "Hey, this is uh, a status symbol." Right. I was running in in this. We're probably getting too far on the tangent of cars, but I was uh, I was running in Irvine uh, two days ago, and uh, uh, I ran by a Lamborghini that had been parked on the street overnight uh-huh. in front of a house. And I was like, if you have to park your Lamborghini on the street, you probably have too much car and not enough house. Uh, you know yeah, what I mean? Or absolutely. like, it's like, what is the, how does this work? Like, and, and what is actually like improving the quality of your life? Like one, you sleep in uh-huh. and, and uh, you spend most of your time in and the other, you drive from place to place, you know, and it's already uncomfortable. You know, oh, I see far more Lamborghinis here, like in Hollywood, West Hollywood, which you can't go faster than 15 miles an hour. I just hear them. And, and you're having to go like creep through these potholes. Right. And like, yes, it's yeah. probably actually uh, unpleasant. Absolutely. A uh, few, few things before we get into these surprise questions. Uh, how senior executives 
of major corporations recharge in their downtime. You wrote about this in the book, uh, sailing, long distance cycling, listening quietly to classical music, scuba diving, riding motorcycles, fly fishing. All of these things involve quietude or stillness. Yeah, I, I talked to this, uh, this guy, his name's Randall Kane, and he, he's uh, he's this brilliant sort of guru to all these w- Wall Street CEOs and executives. And he was sort of stu- he's like, he, every time he's like, how do you recharge? How do you recharge? Over and over and over again, their uh, their answer was, uh, an act- it was inevitably an activity. It's not that it's silent, because driving a motorcycle is not silent. Right. It, it's that it doesn't have any voices involved. Um, I'm having this problem right now with podcasts. Like I'm, I've, I really enjoy pod, as we're yes. on a podcast, right? I enjoy podcasts, but probably to my own detriment. Yeah. Um. Uh, last year I did an experiment. I literally went through and deleted every podcast I was subscribed to, and then re-added them only as I missed them. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, a year later now, I, I now have yeah. accumulated too sure. many podcasts, and so I think it's probably time to do that again. Although with the BlackBerry I'm getting, I don't even think I can listen to podcasts You're on have it. To get an iPod also. Yeah, I, I, I might have to do that. I think there's something to be said about having separate devices uh i know that seth godin will often talk about like having a computer to write on and a computer to brat like an ipad to browse on so Rilke did this he had uh two pens on his desk one pen was for writing poetry uh-huh. and then the other was for bills and letters and you know notes and wow. so it, it i think there is an element to making what you I mean, this is very different than what we're talking about, but the sort of like routine and sort of like creating some sacred spaces in your life. Uh Like when I'm here, I'm like going into a place, Uh you know, there's this video I love. uh, It's definitely nothing what we're talking about, but it's this guy and he's like sitting there and he slams his laptop shut. And then all these these dogs come running home or running into the room and the caption is like, "Uh, daddy's returned from cyberspace, you know? (laughs) And and I just love the idea that like you're going into a place, you know, like, because you really go into this tunnel. But like being intentional about that and having like when you do it, where you do it, that sort of thing. Like I do, I use social media on my computer, but not on my phone Mm. Um, because I remember my relationship with social media in 2009 was pretty healthy. Right. You know, it's, because I wasn't carrying it around. Yeah. And I couldn't access it at all times. Yeah. And, and when you can access it at all times, it becomes this thing that we constantly twitch for. And that moment I'm in line at Chipotle, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm not spending time with my own head. It's like, what can I do to get out of my own head immediately? Yeah, no, I and I had a long drive yesterday. I did the same thing. I was like, I could listen to a podcast, but I'm just going to listen to music because um, I'm going to enjoy this time. I'm going to try to be a little bit more present and less... Like, how can I squeeze some work in? Journaling. Yeah. I'm not a fan of journaling, personally. I I would think you would be. I I, I would think I would be, too. Yeah. I just, I simply don't enjoy it. Now, it, I don't mean to be do a semantic thing where it's like, I enjoy writing every day, yeah. but I hate journaling. Like, to me, the idea of, uh, maybe here's why. Okay. I, I teach a writing class, and I often encourage people to try journaling. Like, But I think most writing, like your book here, it does two, I think good writing does two things. It's communicative and it's expressive. Okay. Um, 
some writing, like a math textbook, a calculus textbook, is just communicative. It doesn't express okay. anything really. But when are you going to go to the beach and read a calculus textbook? Yes. Um, something that is truly just expressive and not communicative, it's like a teoretic person on the subway. Like that person sure. is just expressive. They're not communicating anything. And in fact, they don't require an audience at all. I see journaling as mostly expressive and it's not communicating anything um, to an outbound audience. I think you're trying to think about what the result of journaling is and not the process of journaling. So like, I don't know if I've ever re reread any of my journals. It's the process of sitting down in the morning, having it be part the, the thing I did before I left today to come here was, was sit for five minutes with the journals and, and to take thoughts that were in my head and put them down on to take them out of my head and get them onto paper. So what would that look like this morning? You said journals, you just said yeah, so I used three. I used three, which I realize is not scalable for most people, but I think one of them specifically would be best for you. So I, this is how I, one way to start journaling. So I have this thing called a one line a day journal uh -huh. and it's uh, on each page there's five sections and then it has the date. And so uh, like I saw, I started the Tiger Woods chapter of stillness yesterday, last year. Okay. And so I just write one sentence about the day there. Uh-huh. Uh, and Is I've it like done a, it. a summary? In? Well, you can do you can do whatever you want. Like there's a mom version and you like write what your kid was doing that day uh -huh. or you could, you know, you could journal your recovery from, you know, alcohol addiction. You can do however you want it. But the point is it's just one sentence. Like I don't try to go like I'm going to get into journaling. Just like start with one sentence. Mm -hmm. The point is I've done this journal for 3 years so I can see where I was on this day in history every day for the three years and next yeah. year it'll be four and then the final year it'll be five. Okay, I like that. I, so I like that. That yeah. one's an easy one. Um, I do write in a journal sort of like he has right there. Yeah. Uh, and I just, you know, like I record some stuff like this is my exercise yesterday just for some accountability. And then I talk about like what, um, just what's going on, what I'm thinking about. It's just about getting it out. And then I made a journal a couple of years ago called the Daily Stoic Journal, which works with the Daily Stoic. But the idea is like, so each day you read a page of the Daily Stoic, which I don't do because I wrote it. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be weird. Uh, but I do do the <laughs> journal. Actually, sometimes going back and reading something you wrote years ago, it can be like a a, a nice reminder. Like, I, I can't sure. believe I wrote that. I do I do appreciate that, but it, it would be weird every day to read a page of your own writing as Agreed. if you were the audience for yes. your writing. Uh, but there it, ego. <laughs> yes, it'd be so <laughs> weird. It's like, oh, every day I listen to one of my the songs that I've written. It's just like so strange. <laughs> Well, I, I uh, sorry to sidebar this, but there was uh, so Sean will send me podcasts to listen to our podcast, like so I can check it for audio thing or whatever. I was in a grocery store once and uh, I was listening to, to one of our podcasts, and like someone comes up and says hi to me, and I'm like, oh, sorry, I just listened to the podcast. Like, oh, what are you listening to? I'm like, oh, do I lie in this moment? Hours of my own voice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it's, I'm like, ah, nothing you'd be interested in. Um. But so the idea with the Daily Stoic is, and this is sort of based on how the Stoics thought about journaling. It's sort of half from Marcus Aurelius, half from Seneca. But it's like a question that gives you something to be intentional about during the day. So you write about like, like I, th I think today's was like, uh, how can I not let small things get to me? Mm -hmm. You know, and so you would write about that. And then uh, in the evening, you have to reflect on how you did. Yeah. So. Yeah. The, I, I think a way to get to, maybe your problem is just like journaling in the abstract. 
So what if it was more of like, if you're a to-do list person, like what is this like, a, like the five minute journal, another great journal, uh-huh. just like, hey, do these things. It's the process that the value is in, not yeah. in the, what are you getting? Like if I, I, I am not writing one of those journals that can be published after my death. Uh-huh. There's of you're not no Mar- value. You're Marcus Aurelius thing. Yes, definitely not. There is no value in these pages to anyone but me and really not even me. Uh, Aurelius is, 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 I think, your favorite Stoic. Uh, yes. Epictetus is mine for some reason. And I, I think that it's like whoever you discover first is probably the one that I tends think there's to, an element of that. Tends to resonate the most. He's, uh, I think, the... He's the least poetic of the Stoics uh-huh. in my eyes. So I think he's great, but it's it's a little... He's more of like the football coach, uh-huh. you know? And I think Marcus Aurelius is is more of the sort of like... Uh, is more the insights, and then Seneca's more the, the beautiful prose. Yeah, yeah. You, you had this quote from Epictetus in the book, if you wish to improve, be content to appear clueless or stupid uh, in extraneous matters. Yes. Um I like that because we're so afraid of appearing yes. clueless or stupid. And so we often, one of the most powerful phrases that I know is, I don't know. Yeah. But it's so hard to say that sometimes. Of course. Or, or even like, like, have you ever seen, you know, The Godfather? And you're like, yeah, and you haven't. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. you don't even want to admit that you haven't seen a movie. Right. I, I have seen The Godfather. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the point, the, the point, the point is, uh, you know, you don't, you don't even want to admit that you haven't heard of something you don't even care about. Uh-huh. You know, yeah, that's and, why I love Nicodemus. I wish he was here today to, to, because he he's totally fine with like, what is that? Like, he's like, yeah. he'll have like my daughter isn't like, yeah, I know what that is. She's yeah. sick. She's like, yeah. no, what is it? Why? What? Who? And 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 it's okay. In fact. It should be okay for us to be like, no, I don't know anything about that. Can you tell me about it? Yeah, or or channel like your sort of inner old man that's like, what's the Facebooks? You know, right. like like that's also great. Like we're just like, this is not important to me. You right. know, like, and it seems dumb and insignificant. You know, yeah. like I, I like that too. But it, uh, this goes to back to the managing the inputs thing we were talking about. Like I think people think that being informed is their civic duty. Mm. Um and it kind of is, but not really. You know what I mean? Right. Your civic duty is voting, uh, contributing to the political sphere. Uh, you are not helping anyone except the shareholders of CNN by watching them speculate about what's going to be in the Mueller report. Yeah, if, if news is always breaking, then it's broken. Yes, it, but but actually, like there is some breaking news that is important. Yeah. So my, what I'm my, saying is this: the opinion about what the the majority of the news is actually is either opinion about what the news is going to be when it comes in, what's going to be in the jobs report today, mm-hmm. right? Is the Senate going to pass this? Like, it, are the uh, this is revealing that I know too much about what's going on. Is the Senate going to return to pass an assault rifle bill? It are, you know, is Trump going to be impeached, right? Is right. this going to happen? Uh, no amount of watching that contributes to whether it will or won't happen. Uh, and then when you watch uh, like sports, sports journalism is the worst. They go like, is Odell Beckham Jr. too much of a jerk? Or like, should uh, should Antonio Brown have been forced to play? You know, like like uh, should should the Giants have traded so and so? It's like again, no amount of watching this and no amount of what they're saying changes about what objectively happened or didn't happen. Right? right? Only or what will happen? Yes. So the only thing that matters is what did happen, mm-hmm. right? And then 
a lot of that you don't need to know exactly as it's happening. Like, I to- totally agree. In fact, I mean, I think that's sort of the problem is, so my hometown, Dayton, Ohio, there was a terrible, we're recording this on, what is this, uh, the 6th of, of August? Um, there was a terrible mass shooting two blocks from the house I still own in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, you know, nine people were murdered two yeah. blocks from my house, uh, 27 people injured. Um, and, and so you have that, that is true breaking news that deserves the front page of the newspaper. But eventually a week from now, a month from now, three months from now, there'll be, you know, Kim Kardashian makes a stop and it occupies the same space. It becomes the breaking news because as the news organization, you're, you have, you know, whether it's a fiduciary responsibility or just like an obligation to fill the front page. Yeah. But we're treating these things as if they're the same thing. It's even though and, they're and not. And also that there's just even a tiny but m- massive uh, distinction between like, it's going to be on the front page and then watching it on television as it's happening. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like uh, sadly, in, in a couple of these shootings, not all the people who ha- will ultimately be victims of it have died yet. Like, mm-hmm. there are people in the hospital, in cri- you know? Like, yeah. And so, so it's terrible, but you can kind of put a pin in it and, and, and let, you can let it sit. I'm not saying you'd never come back to it, but you do, the idea that you need to be reading 10 stories 50% of which in the stories ends up being made irrelevant. Like Napoleon was saying, mm-hmm. by the ultimate thing, by the ultimate outcome, eventually it's not news, it's history, right? And that's kind of closer to the point you want to get involved. Like, like I like watching sports. Let's just, uh, the game starts and the game starts. You don't need to spec, you don't need to watch SportsCenter talking about who is going to play. Because yeah. not only does it not have any impact, but like you're not the coach, you know what I mean, yeah. and and it will sort itself out. Like yes, yeah, and I, I think that's a beautiful point. And instead of instead of consuming, you know, the thing that I asked this weekend, while well, I was certainly consuming because it was so close to home for me, and yeah. literally I'm calling people like, "Are you okay?" Um, uh, is how can I help? And, and yes. I think maybe that that's a better a better lens through which to look at something. Like, and it, sometimes I have to pause, let this clear because. In that true emergency, there's nothing I can do in the moment yeah, here, two thousand right. miles You're away. Not an emergency responder, right? But I can help, whether it's monetarily or getting the word out through the audience, wh- whatever it is. Yeah. But but I I also have to step back in order to help sometimes. Yeah, I th- I think that's right. And and like like look like uh, if you live in Florida and there's a hurricane coming, you should be watching the breaking news about it so you can prepare. Right. If you live in Ohio, yeah, you don't need to be watching the weather patterns in Florida. <laughs> as much as the weather channel has now made us think that this is like a thing we should be watching. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And, and, and yet we do because we feel compelled. It's uh, well, it's the, it's the breaking news syndrome and, yeah. and we feel like it's all, it's, I, I need to consume this. Anyway, we have uh, some surprise questions right. and we're almost run, running out of time here. Um, Sean, can we get some of these voicemails? Annie in Syracuse has a question. Hi, my name is Annie McDonald. I am calling from Syracuse, New York. I am a wife and the mother of a beautiful three-year-old son, and I'm calling you guys because I recently went through a home tragedy where one-third of our modest home was actually went through demolition and recently is in the process of being constructed. It has put us in a little bit of a financial constraint, and my husband and I are actually completing the work ourselves um, over time. As a result, there's a lot of necessary tools and necessary material taking up valuable living space in our already small home. 
I am calling because I'm reaching out to you guys for any advice or inspiration you can give to those individuals or families that consider themselves minimalists when they're confronted with a situation that basically conflicts with their ideologies. Um, how can we be more adaptable? I guess if I, if I were to rephrase Annie's question, I would say, how do I find stillness in the middle of a crisis? Yeah, that's I, you could do that, or or I would say, and and you know, it's it's very sad that they're going through what they're going through, and and sympathies, obviously. I would say, I think the adaptability was the key word. She says, how do you become more adaptable? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if I would tr- if if a situation has happened, you're responding to said situation responsibly, you know, ethically, patiently, whatever. I'm not sure you need to bend reality to fit into your ideology. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So part part of maybe you find stillness is in is in just letting go. It's like like okay, if you're a vegetarian and you're stuck somewhere and they only have meat or vice versa, it's like are you trying to force a situation that you can't address or do you just go maybe vegetarian sounds ethical. So you try to eat this diet or that diet uh-huh. and you're somewhere they don't serve those things, are you going to are you going to get upset? Are you going to make do you let this get to you? Or are you just going to order something and make up for it later? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think we, we make some things bigger in the moment than they will be a year from now, five years from now, whatever. Yes. And, and the thing that is catastrophic in the moment is not um, is not always even consequential later on. Or you look back on it and you actually have a strange, fond memory of the struggle that you went through. Yeah, it's like, look, you have to figure out where buying uh, a yacht fits with your minimalist strategy or, you know, or whatever, or having eight cars or, uh, you know, jewelry shopping all the time. I don't, you're repairing your house and you're doing it yourself. Like things are going to be a little nuts for a while. Like, uh, like when I look back at my twenties, one of the things that I regret is how rigid I was Mm. thinking that it was about self-discipline, but really that self-discipline was almost becoming a vice. Like I was thinking that I could, it's a, there's a control freakness there. Yeah. It, it, discipline can all, can manifest as like, uh, as a prison sentence as well, where you've created your own well-decorated prison cell. Yes. Um, all right. Next question. Prison cell. Yeah. Right. Uh, another question here from uh, Tyler in Chattanooga. Hey, Josh. Hey, Ryan. I've been following your podcast for a long time, and I just wanted to first of all say thank you. Your points on living intentionally and decluttering mentally and physically have helped me change my life just drastically over a few short weeks. And there's one hurdle that I can't seem to jump over. I've minimized pretty much my entire life, including harmful or toxic relationships, but there's one relationship that I can't legally cut out of my life. I recently went through a divorce from one of the most toxic people I've ever met. And that's great, but we have a two-year-old son that we now have to legally co-parent. This man causes me more stress and grief and anxiety than you can imagine, but I legally can't cut him out of my life. He's detrimental to my health, wellness, and growth. How do I deal or cope with this? So we're still talking about peace here. How do you, how do you find peace within a toxic relationship? Yeah. Um, the one that because usually I mean, the thing that we talk about is letting go of shitty relationships, and quite often you can distance yourself from people, even people that you love. Sometimes the best way to love someone is to love them from a distance. Yeah. Now, um, I actually have a, a very similar uh, uh, instance to this. So my daughter is not my biological daughter. She has a biological father, and so he is still in her life and. I, I, it, 
for a long time was, I can't say, I, I wouldn't use the word toxic. I think some people, uh, especially my wife, would, might, might use that word. Um, but it was not a, a thriving relationship. And we certainly didn't have a thriving relationship. However, um, as, time cha- as things changed over time, the relationship has gotten slightly better. It's still not ideal. But um, I found that for, for us, it's about having... It's about me putting forward a positive interaction anytime I can and not reacting to the toxicity. Yeah, I mean, so the Stokes would go like, look, you don't control other people, you control yourself, right? You don't control what happens, you control how you respond. So just going like, this person is who they are. They, they, in the way that you might go, okay, I'm, you know, I'm in the ring with this fighter and he tends to try to cheat in this way, mm-hmm. but that's where you are. So what you, what do you do? You adapt to it, right? You you have certain defenses. Uh, what you don't do is let it get to you, right? And you don't let them rattle you because in, in some ways, like getting inside your head is like what they ultimately want. Mm. And so I think it's going like, look, I'm going to control how I am in this situation. I'm not going to be toxic. I might say like, I'm going to focus my energy on making sure that my child is as protected from this as possible, that they're not picking up on the stress that I'm carrying. You know, I, I just focus on the parts of it you control. Um, and then look, I, I would say that like, I don't know this person, um, but like we can also... We can make bad situations worse uh, by like putting these like sort of labels on them that like then tend to confirm every. So it's like, like it's great that you've come to the understanding that this person isn't someone you'd willingly have in your life, mm-hmm. but you do have to have them in your life. So going like they're toxic, they're manipulative, they're out to get me, all is probably in some ways heightening the tension between you two because now every time they do something, it confirms that understanding that you have of them. So softening the language might help out a a little bit too. I'm not saying it's magically solve it, but it might reduce tensions by 5%. Yeah, which is a step in the right direction. Sure. Chris in Tallahassee has a question. Hello, guys. This is Chris from Florida. Um, The question is about writing. I'm a technical writer by trade. It's my day job, but I write fiction in my spare time. Often I get an idea about a story that I'm excited about and I'll start writing, but soon a newer, sexier idea comes along and I feel attempted to abandon the first idea. Do you guys have some tips for staying energized with an older idea and finishing it before moving on to the next thing? So I think what you are dealing with is is what Stephen Pressfield would call the resistance. Yeah. The sort of trademark resistance. You're starting a project, you're doing the easy parts, and it's not that you're having another idea and then you can't stay focused, it's that the beginning of the idea is usually the easiest, most fun part. And so you're just, you're like water, you're just going downhill towards, and then as soon as it gets hard, you're switching directions. So I would strongly suggest reading The War of Art. I think it's sort of the most important, uh, like creative sort of manifesto of our times. It's helped me on all sorts of projects. But I, I would, what I would do is the next time you have an idea, don't just sit down and write the idea. I would sit down and plan out the idea. So you're like, okay, here's, I, I would I would spend more time researching and outlining and investing in the idea so that your writing is not, is not dependent on enthusiasm yeah. uh, or excitement. Inspiration is not what gets you through the dip of a book. No. It has to be a purpose or a plan um, or a very clear sense of what, uh, like, 
the outcome is, even if that's like, I know what the last sentence of this book is. Yeah, there's a fiction writer, Harlan Coben. He, he talks about how he, he knows where the book begins and ends. It's kind of like a, a map. You, if you know you're going to drive from New Jersey to San Diego, he knows the beginning and the end, and then he gets to find the most circuitous route to sort of get there. And, and that's, that's the adventure for him, but he has a destination in mind. I will say this when I when I think about writing, and, and maybe you can you can shed some light on, on this, Ryan. Um, there are times where it does make sense to bail on a on a project. Of course, I think of uh, the second book. I I started out writing fiction. That was the thing that I did. The the second novel I ever tried to write was a book called Just Past Central, and it it eventually died on the vine possibly because the main character dies in the first sentence of the book and so like trying to figure out how i like yeah yeah protracted it from there was was really difficult and i spent the better part of a year you know uh, going through different iterations and eventually it didn't go anywhere and i had to be willing to let go and it but it wasn't because like oh i'm not excited about this anymore it just it wasn't a book. I thought yeah. it was, and it ended up not being that. I'm sure you've had projects that you've worked on where they didn't end up uh, coming sure. to fruition. Yeah, another book recommendation, Seth Godin's The Dip, because yeah. uh, that's what you, you eventually, you hit that point, and you got to know, do you keep going, and you're actually just digging deeper and deeper, or are you about to come out the other side? Right. Um, for, for me, like, one of the things I do on my books is I break them up in smaller pieces. So, like, stillness is the key. Actually, I think ego and obstacle are almost exactly the same length. It's, like, three parts, ten chapters in each part. So I'm not sitting there going, like, what's this book? You know, it's it's these small pieces of the book. So I'm mm-hmm. sitting down, and my job is to write, to uh, you know, a 2,000-word chapter today or half of a 2,000-word chapter today. So doing that. And th- and then by if you're doing it in these small pieces, like originally Ego is the Enemy was a book about humility, and it wasn't working as a book about humility. I couldn't I couldn't even find what the chapters would be. Mm-hmm. Like, so I was like, this is what I want. I, I wrote, like, I had a good sense of the intro. I had a good sense of the arc, a good sense of the argument. But it was like, okay, what are the 30 stories that I'm filling this book with? And I found, like, three, you know? Yeah. And and so breaking up in smaller pieces let me figure that out. And then it was like, oh, actually, this is a book against ego. And those stories filled up like that, right? Because those are some of the most famous stories in history, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think breaking your idea down to pieces uh, and, and and then looking at these smaller things lets you get a better sense of the whole than actually looking at the whole thing. One thing I have to talk to writing students about is also be careful because research can be very important, but it can also be enticing to prevent us from actually doing the That's work. That's true. Uh, and especially, I imagine someone like you, you've, you've formed a detente between writing and the research, but there are times where it's like, well, I'll just, I'll go off and read some more and, and not actually do the work. But that, that's also where the outlining and the sense of the whole fits in. I'm not just like walking around with a net trying to catch things, it, yeah. you know, that you have, you do want to have a sense of what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I'm trying to f- find what goes here, right? not trying to find things that could work generally yeah Uh, all right uh, we got another question here from katie in pennsylvania hi this is katie from york pennsylvania um i live in an area in the northeast that i find fast-paced i didn't realize that it was this way until i came back from living in the pacific northwest for a year there are lots of cars and buildings where i live now and i often find it claustrophobic living out west i found life slower paced and freeing with so much open land 
I think that more people out that way strive to live in minimalistic ways. Do you think that the place where you live makes minimalism easier? Maybe if we replace the word minimalism with stillness here, we, we can talk about sort of the, yeah, is it easier to, to experience peace in certain places? I was in Sedona recently. It seemed really peaceful, but I can I could find chaos there for sure. I think it's about finding balance, right? Like I've been to Sedona, it's peaceful, but not enough stimulation, right? Uh -huh. uh, I've lived in New York, it was way too much stimulation. Yeah. I lived in New Orleans, it was a lot of stillness, a good amount of stimulation, but maybe missing some uh, other things, you know what I mean? Or maybe there's too much distraction. So I, I think we uh, don't think enough about like where is the right place for people to live based on their personality. Go, oh, you're a writer, you should live in New York. You know, oh, you're a screenwriter, you should live in LA. Oh, you're in tech, you should live in San Francisco. We just go, you know, and, and we don't think about like actually where is the best place for me. Look, I do think it is important to be able to cultivate and find stillness and to avoid chaos wherever you live. And there are, look, some, you're in the military, so you're deployed here, or you know, your your wife's family lives here, so you move there, or you're, you have to return home to take care of your sick parents. Lots of reasons why we don't get to choose where we live, mm -hmm. but like I think ultimately we should be working towards choosing where we live, and and if not where we live, where we live within where we live. So like I moved yeah. to Austin, uh, in 2013, I really liked it. We lived on the east side of town, and uh, it was wonderful. And then my wife and I were talking. We're like, if we're going to spend most of our time in Texas, let's really spend our time in somewhere we could only be in Texas, you know? And so we ended up getting a like a small ranch outside of town, and we, we sort of split our time between the two places. But the idea being, like, the finding the right environment often makes stuff, some of these more tough decisions easier it's like i don't have I, I get i don't have to say no to a lot of things because like i don't live in new york city so they don't ask me you right. know and because i have this place outside town i also have a great excuse for why i can't even do things in the city that i live right you know and just naturally like you know if i'm riding on the farm i can't go out to lunch because there's nowhere around i have to cook at home you know like it just uh, sometimes picking the right environment can limit a whole lot of choices and distractions in the way that like, you know, Obama famously had like two suits so he didn't have to decide what he was going to wear in the morning. Yeah, I think that's that's key. Finding what's appropriate for you and also realizing what is appropriate for the season of life will change. I lived in Montana for five years. Uh, Missoula, Montana, the big city, you yeah. know, uh, and the 67,000 people there. And I found for me, it was appropriate for a period of time. Ryan and I first went there to write uh, our second book and we moved to the cabin in the middle of nowhere. And that was great for like a, a season. We moved to Missoula. That was great for a season. But at some point I felt like I needed to graduate from that place. It was yeah. no longer appropriate sure. for me. And that's actually good news. That means you yeah. can change. And I find that a city like Los Angeles, it does actually enable being a, a minimalist in many other ways. You have access to things without having to have ownership. Sure. In Montana, if I wanted a sauna, I'd have to buy the sauna. Right. Here, I can just go down the street to any of uh, 10 different saunas and it's totally fine. Sure. And so uh, it's finding out what is appropriate given the lifestyle that you want to have. And I think this is where confidence comes in going like, this is who I am. This is what I like. This is what I want my life to be. It doesn't matter that people think I'm weird for not living in New York City or yeah. that people think I can't cut it because I moved 
back to Ohio from Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, like you, it's your life. You have to live it. Don't let other people pressure you or make you feel insecure or weird or or whatever for choosing the place that you live. That's just insane. Yeah. Do you like what you like or did someone else tell you to like it is, yeah. is a yeah. kind or, of way to look at that. Are you afraid to say what you like and you're just nodding along and pretending that you like this mm-hmm. thing that you're actually quite miserable in? Indeed. All right, John in Los Angeles has a question. Hey, my name's John. Uh, I live in Los Angeles. And my question is about um, doing business while being an introvert. Um, I work in the entertainment industry, and there's a lot of networking events and social events, and it's important to kind of always be on and always be at these events, but I find that it drains me a lot, and a lot of it is superficial, and it's just tough to have the motivation, um, but I know it would really grow my business and help. So I'm curious how you navigate that um, challenge. Ryan, are you introvert, extrovert, somewhere in between? De- definitely introvert. I mean, I can sort of function as an extrovert, but mm-hmm. like I very much drained at the end of experiences like that. Uh, a socially co- competent introvert. Is, yeah, is how I yeah. Like if I myself, if I if I go give a talk somewhere and I have to be at this conference for a day and a half, I, I don't. I come home exhausted, right? Even though I only worked for an hour, you yeah. know. Uh, so I definitely agree. And, and yeah, I, I spent some time working in LA and, and, and experienced that as well. I think there's a couple ways to, to crack this one is like, yeah, how do you figure out how to be socially competent? How do you, how do you get some basic skills? So you're not as intimidated by it. So you're not wasting time being anxious about the fact that you have to go to a party. Right. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, look, I can hold my own. I don't, I wouldn't, I'm not choosing to do this, but I'm not like, you know, I'm, you're not expelling unnecessary energy, worrying about it uh-huh. or, or you know, beating yourself up about it afterwards. Uh, But then ultimately, I mean, look, uh, the best, if you want to opt out of these things, do really amazing work that speaks for you. Do you know what I mean? Like ultimately, when you have the goods, uh, you can, you you find just how optional a lot of these things are. Right. And and so like, like, look, I hate going to conferences as an attendee. Uh, because I am introverted, I don't want to talk to people, and I don't, I don't like introducing myself, and blah blah blah. But when I speak at a conference, the dynamic is totally different because now I'm one of like ten people, and my name is printed on all the things, and my picture is there, and I, you know, even even the difference between talking at the beginning of a conference versus the end of a conference, I'd rather talk at the beginning, even if it's not as good of a slot, mm. because my work spoke for me, you know. Uh-huh. And so, uh, I mean, that's you know, there's plenty of like agoraphobic geniuses that that do uh, just fine yeah <laughs> because though the work compensates for the deficiencies i think about thomas pynchon uh, he i don't think he ever did a book tour or any media or press or anything like that now that's uh, uh that's the exception rather than the rule i mean yeah most of us have to realize there is the business side of getting the work out there but there, there are examples of someone like him where, like, the the joke was like you never even saw his face, right? Yeah. And and so you have you have the ability of doing the work, letting it speak for you, and also you might be in the wrong business if you're an extreme introvert. I know I yeah, was. Like, right. I I managed hundreds of of stores and hundreds of employees and. 
I was always, I was an extroverted role. I don't even think I, because I was socially competent, I, I didn't realize I was how extreme of an introvert I was. Sure. And so I set up the wrong life for myself. Yeah. I had to change that. And that might be okay. That, that might be okay for you too, John. I mean, it might. It's not wrong to pivot and move in a different direction if if the life you've set up is no longer working for you. Yeah, it's the same thing. Hey, I'm not happy living in New York. I'm going to move to Montana, or I'm not happy in Montana. I'm going to move to New York, right? Yeah. Not happy in this kind of role. I'm going to move to this role. Um, definitely, for sure. Elizabeth in Los Angeles has a question. Hi, Josh and Ryan. This is Elizabeth Leone from Los Angeles. I deal with chronic daily migraines um and i'm wondering i've worked really hard over the past two years to get in better shape get my migraines under control and um i'm making progress but as the as we enter the summer season and the weather gets more extreme i'm trying to maintain or modulate those habits uh like my daily walking, daily exercise, um, dietary habits, so that I can maintain that success and continue to make progress. Um, but I'm noticing an increase in my migraines, and I'm wondering if you have any advice for dealing with chronic pain in a way that is not excessive and is moderate and doesn't add the chaos that is life. I guess far to rephrase this one, it's how do I find peace despite having chronic pain? Um, this is something that I've had, um, I've had chronic pain in the past um, and have now uh, people who listen to the podcast for a while know I got E. coli poisoning last year and I've had Jesus. the worst year of my life. Yeah. The past 12 months have been like just awful and uh in trying to adjust my life for we were down in brazil speaking at a conference i ate some food and some water down there got food poison ever since my my gut has been destroyed i've got this this terrible bacterial overgrowth and and i've had to adjust my life accordingly um what would the stoics say about about some of this say chronic pain is obviously something that will come up from time to time yeah, as far as we know, I mean, Marcus Aurelius had this sort of chronic stomach ailment. We're not quite sure what it was. Uh, Epictetus, your favorite, uh, was a slave, uh -huh. and he was from how he was chained as a slave. His leg was permanently disabled. He walked with this, uh, what we must imagine was a very painful limp. Um, I I think they they would say. Um, you know, maybe you accept it rather than fighting it. You know, first off, just this idea that this is wrong and it's unfair and like, how can I make it go away? I think they might just sort of try to relax, you know, and go like, I'm sure Epictetus goes, look, I'm going to deal with this for a long time. Mm -hmm. Like, this is this is me, you know, and I'm not going to puff myself up with fantasies that this will magically go away. I'm not going to sit here and, and stew and resentment either. I'm, I'm just going to focus on sort of being present and find out how I can manage this. Um, I don't know. I mean, this, thankfully, this isn't something I have a ton of experience with. So I, and it's not something you want to be, be flip about either. Um, but, but I, I, I think you, you know, you focus on the moments when you're not in pain and you you accept that there's going to be moments when you when you are. Yeah, I often have to look at like what what are the triggers? For me right now it has to do with diet. There's I essentially can't eat any fiber, which is really strange for yeah. me. Um but 
because uh, I realize what are the triggers that will get this bacteria all messed up. And so I, I find like there are other triggers that I didn't even anticipate would have some sort of effect on the gut microbiota, but like stress is, is a big one and identify. Okay. Obviously if you, if you have, you know, these, these, uh, headaches that are, that are migraines, I'm assuming you, you know what six of the triggers are. There are probably six other triggers. You have no idea that sure. they're just loose correlations for you right now, but if you figure them out and then you do what you can to avoid or reduce them, uh, it doesn't mean you're going to get rid of all of your chronic pain, but it's going to help you manage it a lot better. Another thing that um, I've been learning a lot about recently is just inflammation in general. So, so if you what you can do to figure out your inflammation, whether that's CBD oil or curcumin, I know that that's controversial, but um, uh, intermittent fasting, etc. I know I know quite often. Uh, limiting inflammation does have a significantly positive benefit for chronic pain, including sure. including migraines. So, I, I think that's a that's one of the big triggers that we often don't even think about. But I agree with you with respect to the Stoics. Uh, if we, we go back and we, we can't say, well, they were just because Marcus Aurelius was, you know, uh, uh, the most powerful man in the world, doesn't mean he didn't also have ailments. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and uh, and and how how for how long we've been looking for these sort of quick easy solutions like like there's the there's uh some speculation that M marcus's doctor prescribed him uh opium and that probably made the problem worse and then you know here we are two thousand years later a country ravaged by an opioid crisis because people are always tempted for the magical pill or the magical solution that makes you not have to deal with the thing that for whatever reason you're stuck dealing with. Yeah, and, and I think maybe that's the way to think about it is you are going to have to deal with it. What are some of the most effective ways that you can deal with it? And for me, it's avoiding those triggers, but also I I think accepting it, as you said, is, is part of the process. And it sounds to me like, Elizabeth, you're doing a good job of that, but you're realizing that maybe some of these triggers, whether it's seasonality or whatever, it's, it's ramping up right now. And yeah, there, there will be seasons where it's going to be worse than, than other times and, and being willing to, to accept it and to some extent let go of that, let, let go of the control because you, you may not have control of it. Let's do one more question here from Nicole in Lincoln, Nebraska. Hi, my name is Nicole. So I just listened to your podcast about friendships and toxicity and all that jazz and I took the Myers-Briggs test because I always wanted to see what I was and I am ENF so, best way to explain it is that I am the least extroverted of an extrovert, um, and I've kind of been thinking about that for a while because I loved my alone time. I loved to eat out by myself. I loved to go to movies by myself. I loved to spend so much time by myself, but I always feel obligated to call a friend or text a friend or have my friend come with me but secretly I don't want anybody there but my personality the way that I am I always feel like I need to have a person there so my question to you is how do I not do that and just simply allow myself to be alone happily how do I enjoy solitude 
<laughs> how do I how do I enjoy these alone moments? Because it sounds like she wants them, but simultaneously does doesn't want them, or is is telling herself that she doesn't want them. Yeah, I mean, I think I I if the question was how to enjoy solitude, I think there there'd be a number of things. I think in this case, the problem is not that she doesn't enjoy solitude; it's that she refuses to allow herself to have solitude. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Which I think is very common. We we know what we like. We know where we want to live. Uh, we know what makes us happy. We know what kind of work we're best suited for. But then we let these other considera- considerations determine uh, what we do. It's uh, fear of looking foolish. It's the judgment of our parents. It's the the belief that, oh, I need to make a certain amount of money or whatever. Like life is way too short to live somewhere you don't want to live, to hang out with people you don't want to hang out with, you know, to work a job you don't like. I, I have this ring. It's this memento mori on it. Um, and the idea it, on the inside, it has a quote from Marcus Rios. He says, you could leave life right now. Let that determine what you do and say and think. Mm-hmm. And if you want to have lunch by yourself, because that's how you're happy, have lunch by yourself. Are you? If you die after this lunch, you're going to be like, oh, I'm so glad I invited Susan out of guilt and peer pressure mm-hmm. instead of sitting there reading a book or sending a message to someone that I love or just looking out over the ocean. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. life is very short and it's not, it's not just that it's very short. It's that it's much shorter for some people than other people. Right? Like um, on average, it's pretty short, right? I mean, it's long, but it's also pretty short, but in practice you have no idea how long or short yours is going to be regardless of your habits, regardless of, your wealth or your importance or your, you know, responsibility. You can get hit by a bus, your house could get hit by a meteor, you get a cancer diagnosis. You know, look, people get lung cancer who don't smoke. Life yeah. is not fair. It's cruel. It's random. Uh, and even for people who live to be 80, it's too short, right? And so do what you want to do. Uh, we said, we talked about from Epictetus, like be content to be seen as foolish or weird sometimes, but like, you know, it's your life. Live it the way you want to live it. That's that's my view. And not just accept that you're being weird or foolish or whatever, but like being content with that is a whole other level. Of and course. It, and if you can get to that where it's like, you know what? I am going to have lunch today by myself. And that's weird. And it's awesome at the same time. Yeah. And by the way, it's not weird. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's yeah. also not weird. Right. Like, this is such a, there are lots of weird things out there. You know, I live in Austin, so I keep Austin weird. And it's like, cool that we go like, sure, if you want to ride a bike in a thong, uh, you know, on, on Town Lake Trail, we're not going to judge you for it, right? I'm glad we accept that. Eating by yourself because you feel drained being around other people is not weird. That's like probably 50% of the population feels that way. Mm-hmm. It's just we're afraid to talk about it. And so we let the n- norms of the more socially extroverted people determine sort of what we say is normal and because what's the alternative to be incongruent with the person you want to be yeah and how how awesome is that it's not at all and what favors are you doing susan by giving her this pity lunch it's disingenuous (laughs) yeah she's i i she probably can tell do you know what i mean like just don't do it yeah so nicole susan cares enough about you that she knows that you may not want to have lunch with her. Yeah, send Susan an email and then uh, eat lunch by herself. Yeah. All right. Um, Ryan Holiday, I want to acknowledge you for uh, 
for writing something that's really meaningful. I got a lot out of this book. Thank you. I want to encourage folks to to check it out. They can find Stillness is the Key wherever fine books are sold. We'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. You can find Ryan on social media at Ryan Holiday or RyanHoliday.net. Is there anywhere else I should send folks? Uh, Daily Stoic and at Daily Stoic. If you are interested in, you know, we've been talking about Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and all these people. Um, philosophy can seem like this intimidating and practical thing, mm-hmm. uh, but I think it it's a through line through my work. I think it's a through line through your work. I think it's a through line through... Uh, philosophy is is how we solve the problems of of life like as Thoreau would say practically not just theoretically and so if you're if you you want an entry point to that that's what daily stoics about and it's not stuffy and i think you do such a good job of making stoicism and philosophy not stuffy and and make it enjoyable so thank you for the work that you do brother appreciate you all right y'all love people use things we'll see you next time the minimalists (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs>